The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories, little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV, movies, music, and more. And I think today, for only the second time, maybe after the Sonic episode, we are looking at a non-movie music TV piece of pop culture, although it might have virtually any entry in those mediums canon beat for the sheer scope of its influence. That's right, folks. In honor of the official start of summer, we are talking about bikinis jordan yeah. uh jordan i feel like this point of the show is usually where we talk about our personal history with bikinis and unless there's something i really don't know about you uh we might be at a little bit out of our depth here i'm trying to keep this as little like leering and creepy as possible i'm really cognizant of coming off as like the old guy at the nude beach here so <laughs> I will say, though, that the kind of 50s, 60s, like, beach blanket bingo era of pop culture bikini influence is probably up your alley, right? Oh, yeah. No, I really appreciate you adding a dose of kitsch into this episode. I'm really <laughs> excited to get to the the California myth, and I'll keep my Mike Love references to a minimum, but there will ah. be, yeah, a lot, a lot of Beach Boys talk in this episode that I'm excited about. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. This is the part of the show where we talk about our personal experience with a given topic, but... In this case, you're right, our experience is fairly limited, and mine's fairly limited outside of uh, Frankie and Annette movies. But yeah, now <laughs> that it's after Memorial Day, it's the unofficial start of summer, I thought this could be definitely a fun tangent to go down. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not particularly well-versed in the history of fashion or anything, but I do remember having that Raquel Welch in One Million Years <laughs> BC poster burned into my skull like the hot metal talisman gets burned into the Nazi's hand in, in the first Indiana Jones. First uh, time I saw classic. Yeah, wait, where did you see this? I feel like Spencer's Gifts in the Capital oh, wow. City in okay. the Capital City Mall in Camp Hill, PA, baby. Um so much of my formative experience was done like timidly venturing into the hot topic and Spencer's gifts and just like 
surreptitiously taking notes on the stuff that I saw there that I thought was transgressive. I mean, and this is interesting because so many of the things that I learned about as a kid were from like old time life, 1950s, 1960s coffee table books, which is why I saw that poster for the first time too. So I think this this says a lot about each of us. So folks, from the weird influence of the atomic bomb on this particular style of swimmer to how backyard pool culture fueled the boom to what Emily Post said about the bikini, here's everything you didn't know about bikinis. Starting off, the bikini is not actually the first two-piece swimwear in design. Yes, while the Romans did a great many things in the buff, including swim, there are murals that show Roman women wearing what is basically a bikini, like a rap-style bandeau bra and briefs. But they also have great many artistic depictions of everybody being naked in bathhouses. Um, Nudity was much less prohibited when you were playing around in the water for centuries because swimming was limited to people who lived there. Um, you were not. That's a really to... interesting point I hadn't thought about. Yeah. It, did they have a lot of pools in in major cities though too? But I yes. guess if you're just in, in like some kind of agricultural community, yeah, I guess yeah, you're, right. you're not taking the oxen and cart and family down to the beach for a day because half of you would die <laughs> down the shore. <laughs> yeah, there's no down the shore in, <laughs> yeah. in Rome. But yeah, it's interesting that this prudishness around swimming is not part of ancient society because they have all of this rich mythology of like water related gods and nymphs and um so on and so forth so like you don't really see this prudishness around public bathing start to take root basically until the middle ages yeah it's really interesting i mean there are paintings and mosaics dating back to 5600 bc in the ancient settlement of catalia I'll just pretend that's the right way to say that. It's in present-day <laughs> Turkey. And it shows their goddesses wearing uh, two-piece swimming-style outfits. And there's surviving Minoan paintings from 1600 BC that show similar uh, swimsuits that look like something out of a Frankie and Annette movie, basically. It's really strange how that style is something that you see in paintings and mosaics that are thousands of years old. And there's also an ancient Sicilian villa from roughly uh, 250 AD, so, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, which features a mosaic of women playing sports wearing what were called subligar and strophium, <laughs> which acted as bottom and top coverings, respectively. So, yes, this has quite the history. But it was the medieval period that really made a change here, probably due to the fact that this is the classic era of hand-drawn maps with weird beasts on them that just said, here be monsters. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> you know, if that's your mass media, you're probably a little bit scared off of deep water. It was also, I think, a result of the Black Plague, too, that was bathing and swimming were thought to spread disease. So this was definitely a dark age, not only for knowledge, but for swimming attire, because it wasn't really needed (laughs) because people weren't swimming that much. The real tragedy of the Dark Ages. (laughs) Yeah. And this starts to change in the 1700s when it becomes considered healthy and beneficial to just kind of sort of submerge yourself in the oceans or hot springs. They didn't really have like a concept of swimming as like a dedicated, healthy athletic activity. They were just like, just go in in and sort of, yeah, be in it. It'll be good for you. Yeah, there's the baths in Saratoga. There's the baths in Bath, England. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. there are a lot of these these kind of health spas cropping up all over the world. Like, yeah, yeah you said you just would sort of like take in. What was the expression? Take in the waters? Taking the waters. Yes, yep. yes. Uh, and in fact, it would take one of our nation's horniest founding fathers, Benjamin <laughs> Franklin. Uh, 
huge proponent of swimming and at one point mm-hmm. contemplated setting up uh, a school for it in London. I'm guessing because, as you said, he was a randy old man who was rumored to have died of syphilis. Um, but, it, you know, the swimwear around this time, if you can even call it that, was just it, it's <laughs> some of these photos are ridiculous. Makes me lament not for the first time that there isn't an audio or a visual component to this podcast because these are hilarious. It's just like these huge shifts like moo-moos, but they're made from like wool, the canvas, The heaviest and material flannel. you could imagine. <laughs> yeah. And they would weigh the hem downs uh, to keep them from floating up. Oh, yeah. I mean, they would stick actual like lead weights and sew them into the bottom. And as you mentioned, these swimming garments were heavy. I mean, they weighed over 20 pounds. And as a result, up until like the 20th century, women traditionally swam, and I say that in quotes, by holding onto a rope attached to a buoy because with their swim outfits were so heavy that they would just sink like a stone. There's this other thing called um, swimming machines that I thought were really interesting, which are these like, they look like sheds, like suburban gardening sheds that you would keep the mower or the wheelbarrow in. They're on wheels and they just roll them into the ocean and women go into them and kind of cavort around inside of them. Then they get wheeled back (laughs) out of the ocean. Those were old. Those were invented by quankers in like the 1750s. And they had this hole that you would jump through into the ocean and they called this hole a modesty tunnel, which... Oh, modesty tunnel. That takes me back to my weekend in Acapulco. Hey, the 1800s, big century for swimmers. You see railroads in the 1820s, I believe, and other advances in personal transportation mean that people can now go down the shore (laughs) or to the lake or what have you. It's just people are more mobile on a bigger scale. Uh, And this is where you start to see the bloomer suits, which are the big puffy skirts over the big puffy pants again just so much so much fabric how did um, people not drown in these things? i know it's really wild um it's like swimming and, in a parachute yes the <laughs> parachute like, pants even it's like the yeah. mc hammer pants uh there were laws passed at the turn of the century that required all women in bathing suits to wear stockings which was kind of a double blind because women were also not allowed to wear pants. But then around the turn of the 19th century, swimming becomes both an intercollegiate and Olympic sport, which kind of drives up its popularity. And a decade or so after that, there's this really interesting figure. Uh, She's an Australian swimmer named Annette Kellerman, and she created and successfully markets her own swimsuit that's based on kind of the what I would describe as the old-timey wrestler, like this Andre the Giant singlet sort of thing. Uh, the men were wearing just like a tank top merged with shorts, I guess. Is that technically also a romper? I don't know. The, the version I saw had full sleeves that went down to your wrists and leggings that went down to her feet. But because it was form-fitting, she was arrested for wearing it on a Massachusetts beach in 1907 and charged with indecent exposure, despite the fact that she wasn't exposed outside of her hands and head. Um, and this became a fairly high-profile legal case at the time, which she ultimately won, setting the precedent for women's swimwear that actually lent itself to swimming and not just like trying not to sink (laughs) (laughs) swimming bags yeah um yeah annette kellerman is such a fascinating person yeah she wore leg braces as a child when she was growing up in australia and she took up swimming to strengthen them became one of the first women to try and swim the english channel at the age of just 19 and um she wrote a book about swimming she helped popularize synchronized swimming as a sport And she was even the first woman to appear nude in a Hollywood film, which is 1916's A Daughter of the Gods. But she's got kind of the Venus on the Shell situation. This movie was reportedly the first million-dollar film ever produced. But like so many early films, no copies are known to exist, and it's now considered lost. 
Isn't there like a huge amount of those films that are lost? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was between the film just degrading and just fires and stuff just straight up not being kept because people didn't really have much of an eye towards saving things for posterity at this time. Yeah, there's a lot of, it's all Wikipedia entry on lost films of, you know, historical significance. And that's a big one. Ugh, bummer. Um, but despite Annette's efforts, women were still subject to weird laws around bathing suits. There are photos out there of actual swimsuit police going around on the beach with like a whistle and a badge <laughs> and a ruler measuring the length of these women's suits to make sure that they were in order. But women were not the only ones subject to draconian puritanical laws about swimwear. In most states, it was illegal for men to be topless until 1937. And lawmakers in Atlantic City held out even longer, saying that they didn't want, and this is a quote, gorillas on our beaches. That's got to be racist. I assume that's a deeply racist sentiment. Yeah, it's offensive on multiple levels. <laughs> As with most things, we have smut to thank for knocking down boundaries. Burlesque, which is, I believe, one of like two native art forms that are actually native to the to the Americas. It's like jazz and the blues and burlesque. Really, um, I would have assumed that that was like French vaudeville. I could see being, although I guess that's music hall. No, because yeah, vaudeville has its roots yeah. in music hall. Uh, burlesque, I believe, is a wholly American invention. Jamie, can we get a fact check on that? Um, <laughs> number one. Number one. <laughs> of course, jazz and burlesque. I mean, I'm happy to assume that those are the two yeah. wholly American art forms. Exactly. That and like, you know, fast food. <laughs> yeah. It makes, it's all scans. Yeah. Um, so burlesque, obviously, they're getting to some degree of nudity, but vaudeville performers too, like, um, you know, Harry Houdini around this time was pretty frequently seen shirtless. Because he was submerged oh, yeah. in water and heavy chains and all that. Then there's a 1929 film, Man with a Movie Camera, that showed uh, women topless and in two-piece bathing suits that would expose their midriffs. Uh, this isn't strictly about bikinis, but there's this great story about the New York mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, from whom, you know, LaGuardia Airport takes its name, and there's a musical about him. Very famous New York mayor. He supposedly, I mean, this is kind of apocryphal, jump-started the development of the thong in 1939 because the city was hosting the World's Fair at the time, and he wanted New York's dancers and striptease artists to be slightly more clothed, and the result of this sort of mayoral edict was to develop the thong. Good for LaGuardia. Um, so moving into the 1930s, there are a couple things that happen. There are advances in fabric technology. We've got uh, DuPont to thank for that, I believe, who invented nylon. And napalm. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, that might have been Dow. That might have been Dow, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, the two sides of American culture, nudity <laughs> and horrific violence. Um, so you, you basically stop making bathing suits out of like heavy flannel and cotton and, and all this other stuff. And two... Men stop covering up their chests while they're swimming or competing in sports, which helps us normalize increasing levels of nudity on the national stage. Uh, it's interesting because the other big development that happens around this time, and I see Coco Chanel's name attached to this, is making tans fashionable. You know, previously the reason that you have all of these alabaster women and portrayals of antiquity was because if you had a tan, it meant you were outside laboring like a disgusting peasant, and therefore <laughs> if you were pure white as the driven snow... It meant you were inside at all times and therefore of a higher financial cast. And that's even why people would powder their face and powder their wigs, trying to look as pale and as untouched by the sun as possible. But that starts to change. Um, and so one of the ways in which you showed that you had money now was by traveling and by going on holiday. Oh. 
And this is where we get the backless swimsuit because the backless swimsuit exposed an even greater swath of your, you know, tanned, tanned skin. And so that's one of the first shots across the bow of increased swimsuit skimpiness. <laughs> Um, and so in 1932, you have a French designer named Madeleine Vionnet who designed an evening gown with an exposed midriff. And obviously, we owe a huge debt to Busby Berkeley and those films. Uh, the 1932 one, Footlight Parade, showed bikinis, as did Dorothy Lamour's The Hurricane in 1937. But this is all pre-Hays Code. So, Jordan, talk to us a little bit about the Hays Code. Yeah, the Hays Code was put in place, I believe, in the late or mid-30s to the mid-50s. And it was kind of like the Ten Commandments of filmmaking, like things that you were not allowed to show. And they were very strict and usually pretty ridiculous. I mean, I don't think this was strictly tied to the Hayes Code, but the kind of thing where, like, on I Love Lucy, where they were, the Ricky and Lucy were shown in separate beds and they weren't allowed to say, like, pregnant and had to say, like, expecting and th things like that. Things where very puritanical, rigid code of what you could and could not show in a film. But prior to this Hayes Code, movies from the 20s and 30s are actually, in a lot of cases, surprisingly very liberal in terms of their, you know, what they showed in terms of sex and fashion and language. It's really interesting. Um, the actress Dolores Del Rio holds the title of the first major star to wear a two-piece swimsuit on screen in the 1933 film Flying Down to Rio. Um, chorus girls. Also, chorus girls at the time are obviously sort of exempt from this rule. They're fashioned in bikini style outfits. But the whole thing is like navels, right? Like you have to cover navels. That's the Barbara Eden thing. Yeah, that was the thing. As you said, into the 60s with Barbara Eden and I Dream of Jeannie. I think Cher was like the first. I think oh, she might have been the first person on network TV to, to do that. I God think. love her. God Good bless her. her. She's broken down yeah. so many barriers, Cher. <laughs> she really, her. truly has. Um, so there's an American designer named Claire McCardle who brings out a side cut bathing suit in 1935. You know, we're getting the backlist, we're getting the sides cut out, so we're edging closer towards the bikini, and that's in 1935, as I said. And uh, Jordan, you have a, an interesting fact here. Yeah, this is just something really pretty hilarious that I came across. A few months before the bikini was unveiled in 1946, there was something called the Midnight Buoy. <laughs> and this was advertised in, like, Life magazine and Vogue. And it was manufactured by the Duchess Royal Company, and it was a two-piece suit with a cork buckle attached across the bottom. And if the wearer wanted to remove it while swimming, they could tie the top to the buckle and allow both parts to float while you splashed around swimming in, in the buff. And it was advertised in a December 1945 issue of Vogue. And the fact that it was advertised in Life magazine is pretty crazy to me because that's such a mainstream publication. But the ad featured this priceless copy. There's a, Google it. You can see it. The name of the suit, of course, the Midnight Buoy, suggests the nocturnal conditions under which nude swimming is most agreeable. So that I mean, yeah, someone's really feeling a, feeling a need in a market there. It was some impressive. Uh, I want to hear the radio ads for it, where they're like, <laughs> "The Midnight Buoy <laughs> for all your nude bathing needs." <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's like, how often has this happened to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh boy. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, 
time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Jordan wrote this header. I have to get shouted out for him. The atomic bomb, enter the atomic bomb and the Frenchman. One of Aesop's less popular fables. <laughs> um, so the important thing about all of these bikini precursors and all of these different, you know, burlesque outfits and all this stuff is that they were usually pretty high cut. Um, they conceal the belly button. More of the butt is actually concealed by them. We're not edging into G-string territory. But World War II curbs the production of fabrics across the board and because it, because it was needed, among other things, to make uniforms for the six millions of men and women who were serving, 16 million. And in 1942, the United States War Production Board issues Regulation L85, which cuts the use of natural fibers in clothing and mandates a 10% reduction in the amount of fabric in women's beachwear. So the government literally comes in and says, your bathing suits have to be skinny. Johnny! Make the bathing suit skimpier. <laughs> it's going to help us win the war. 23 skidoo. Then, of course, we drop the atomic bomb. Um, a humanitarian uh, moment. Uh, not a humanitarian moment. A low point in, a, in humanity, I should say. Jordan, take us into the Frenchman. Yes, this brings us to my favorite part of this episode, which is the arms race. Really the only kind of arms race I can get behind. Between two Frenchmen to create the smallest, most scandalous swimsuit the world has ever known. A very noble pursuit. Uh, especially coming after all this talk about the atom bomb. Um, There was a Frenchman named Jacques Heim who was apparently an active member of the French resistance during World War II. And he created a two-piece design that he called the Atom, but it failed to catch on. But the Atom is a great name for a small swimsuit because at the time, that was the smallest unit of matter then known to exist. Tiny suit, tiny particle. Very clever. I just want to savor that before we start talking about bombing tropical island paradises into glassy <laughs> craters. I just think I just think it's cute, Adam. I think it's a, it's a much more clever name than the bikini. Um, oh, shots fired! So you're Team Heim. Team, I mean, yeah. I guess technically he's the originator. So yeah, but I mean, both these guys really knew the promo game. And this guy Jacques Heim, he uh, hired 
a skywriter to write the world's smallest bathing suit is now available above a very popular Mediterranean resort. Uh, so this guy was not messing around. Well, should we talk about the design? It's I think it probably kind of looked like the one Rachel McAdams is wearing in the notebook. It had like a, a ruffled top, but the bottom of it was still high cut, covered the navel, covered most of the butt. Still too risque for women, though. Does not catch on. Yes, and this guy, Jacques Heim, he was upstaged a short time later, I think it was within the same year, by another Frenchman, Louis Rayard, and he's the man that we now credit as the inventor of the bikini. And Rayard was an automotive engineer who helped run his mother's lingerie shop, which I think sounds a little awkward, but moving on. Um, They're French. They have more enlightened attitudes about this kind of stuff than we do. That's true. Um, I just think it's interesting to note the ties between engineers and those who make women's undergarments. Uh, Howard Hughes, the legendary uh, eccentric billionaire and recluse. I was going to say legendary guy with jars of urine. Yeah. He uh, he got his start in engineering. I mean, as everyone who saw The Aviator knows, he designed planes. But by the 30s and 40s, he had moved into producing films, and he was unhappy with the footage that he was seeing from a movie he was making with Jane Russell called The Outlaw in 1945-1946. And he was specifically unhappy with her uh, I'll say appearance. So he put on his engineering hat and he designed a cantilevered bra for his star to wear. And apparently he was better at designing planes than he was designing underwear because Jane Russell described his contraption as, quote, uncomfortable and ridiculous. Believe me, this man could design planes, but a Mr. Playtex, he wasn't, which is an incredible wow. soundbite from her. But, 40s uh, burn. Yes. Um, anyway, back to the swimsuit arms race. Uh, Rayard was inspired when he noticed sunbathers on the St. Tropez beach roll up the edges of their swimsuits to achieve, you know, a, a more full tan. Yeah, and uh, so he basically won up Heim by making the design even skimpier. Uh, basically, he created the, it was a string bikini. He connected all of the essential pieces of fabric with string and christened his creation the bikini after the bikini atoll where the atomic bomb testing had taken place just days earlier. Yeah, the term bombshell was already in the popular lexicon, so Rayard hoped that his creation would shock people in the same way that the A-bomb did, which, I mean, I'm really curious to see what a marketing expert would say about linking the atomic bomb and an item of vacation apparel. But uh, I mean, but go with God. Se <laughs> sex and death. The yeah, two things, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, what Very else do you American. want? Of, yeah. Um, debuting on July 5th, 1946, Rayard's design used only 30 inches of fabric and exposed not just the navel, but much of the derriere with the G-string style design. And consequently, he could not find a model daring enough to wear it in public for the big reveal. So he used a 19-year-old exotic dancer, Michelle Bernardini, as the very first model. And I love this. She supposedly received 50,000 letters after modeling it at a Parisian pool. And she's still alive. She turned 94 in December and lives in Australia. And she restaged the famous bikini premiere photo 40 years after the original in 1986 when she was 58 years old. Hell yes. Uh, <clears throat> Rayard, if nothing else, had an instinct for flair. He <laughs> patterned one of the versions Bernardini would wear in newsprint, just sort of already winking at the rush of press coverage this thing was going to get. And uh, I love how horrible these people are to each other. He marketed his version as smaller than the world's smallest bathing suit in kind of a direct shot across the bow to his competitor and declared that for a design to be considered an authentic bikini, it must be so small 
It had to use so little fabric that it could be pulled through a wedding ring, <laughs> which is an indelible bit of P.T. Barnum-esque uh, humbug, you know? That's quite a metaphor. Not just any ring, a wedding ring. Yeah. Um, Bernadette was seen holding up a matchbox in the first photos of her in the suit to indicate that the bikini was so small that it could fit inside of a matchbox. And as you said, this guy Rayard really had a gift for showmanship. And as a promo gimmick, he commissioned a car body specialist to turn his car into a road yacht. They turned the whole body of the car into this mock luxury cabin cruiser with a cockpit, portholes, an anchor, a signal mast, and other nautical regalia. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't, you know, an amphibious vehicle, so it couldn't go in water. <laughs> but the car went on advertising parades with a crew of bikini-clad women, which caused a splash, as it were. I mean, this is basically Hello. like the, what is it, the, what was that, that, the Budweiser ad, like the Swedish bikini team or something? It was like that, like 50 years early. <laughs> yes, needless to say, it caused a stir. The International Herald Tribune ran nine separate articles on the unveiling event alone. <clears throat> Spain, Italy, Australia, Portugal, France all banned it for a time, and they were prohibited in German public swimming pools until the 1970s. Wow, I love how offended Germany was by this. There was a women's magazine in Germany called The Modern Girl, and they wrote, it is unthinkable that a decent girl with tact would ever wear such a thing. And then in 1950, American swimsuit mogul Fred Cole, the owner of mass market swimmer firm Cole of California, told Time that he had little but scorn for France's famed bikinis. I imagine that doing the Orson Welles voice. I have little <laughs> but scorn for these so-called French bikinis. Um, Cole of California, it's a work in progress. Uh, Cole of California, also famous for being Catherine Coulson, the log lady from Twin Peaks. Her aunt, Margaret Feligi, is a longtime designer for Cole of California. So Eraserhead was partially funded by profits from Cole of California. So if you want to draw this connection, there's a connection between the popularity of bikinis and Eraserhead. So... I don't know, that's pretty America. You know, David Lynch, man, that's America. Uh, all right, keep going with these bikini quotes that we can maybe read in Orson Welles' voice. Yeah, I mean, my favorite pearl-clutching quote about bikinis is from the actress and swimmer Esther Williams, who commented that, this is just beautiful, a bikini is a thoughtless act, period. Ah. It's just incredible. Um, and the really insane thing to me is that there are still places in the world where bikinis are banned. There is a city in Croatia where you can be fined for walking the streets in a swimsuit. In the Maldives, where most public beaches are restricted to one pieces. And there's a city in the UAE where swimwear is banned entirely. And this is even true in places in the good old U.S. of A., in 1990, the state of Florida banned thong bikinis uh, from its state beaches. And in January 2005, the city of Melbourne, Florida, followed suit. If you're caught wearing a thong in Melbourne, you will owe $500 in fines and possibly 60 days in prison. Though I, I, I wonder how strictly this rule is enforced. On the, on the flip side, there's a beach in Egypt called La Femme, which prohibits men and cameras so Muslim women can sunbathe without um oh yeah i think it was actually very recent that that was i think it's actually a private beach that was opened i want to say i mean definitely in the 2000s possibly oh, cool. even the 2010s yeah um and the catholic church really had it in for bikinis at one point the vatican newspaper and this is coming from uh, a book called bikini story by an author named patrick alak so i'm taking him at his word for this but this sounds made up 
There is a newspaper in the Vatican, the Osservatore Romano, who wrote that the four horsemen of the apocalypse were alive and well and had taken the form of the bikini. I mean, yeah, that papal thing reminds me of that Lenny Bruce quote, if your body's dirty, the fault lies with the manufacturer. <laughs> so it's funny to me that, that the Vatican has such a problem with, with the human form. Yeah, not like anything else was happening in the priesthood throughout the 20th century. Um, and apparently at one point, I was not able, this is also from Alex's book, I just wanted to put this in here, it's hilarious, I wasn't able to find out which communist group, <laughs> but apparently some communist group decried bikinis as capitalist decadence. <laughs> and so a world turned its horny eyes to America. And the topic of this heading, the heading that I used for this in the outline was Pools Rush In, <laughs> where angels fear to tread. Um, <clears throat> but because America is a terrible place soaked in the blood of the innocent, it's impossible to discuss the rise of the bikini without the rise of the private pool. So, white America's spending power and wealth was at its concentrated peak following World War II because you have veterans coming home on the GI Bill able to enroll in college, pick up higher-paying jobs, and labor unions are at their historical strongest in America. Um, the strongest they would ever be, this is the era of Hoffa, this is the era before, you know, uh, what, 30 years later, Reagan comes in and busts up the Air Controllers Union. And Anyway, labor unions are at their strongest peak, so... Money is good. There are lots of jobs to go around because the industrial um, economy with cars, all that good stuff. There's more money floating around in the same people that have always had money. And but like all the infrastructure is put in place to basically make the war effort happen with building planes and you know munitions yes. and stuff. It's basically turn on a dime and turn into making consumer goods, cars, like you mentioned, and uh, appliances and things like that. And it's important to note that public pools have actually been a big part of American urban culture until now. Um, and they weren't, I don't want to say they weren't even, but they were actually desegregated until 1920, especially in the North. Uh, you saw these big public pools where um, black people and white people were swimming together. But around 1920, you start having all these morality scares. And so they become segregated. And that's when you see all these really heartrending pictures of, of the you know, the Jim Crow era of all these white kids playing in pools and all these little black kids up against the fence looking in. Uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, heavy air quotes, officially ends segregation in schools in 1954. <laughs> and pools are not exempt from the struggles that are around that. Three years later, in Marshall, Texas, there's an NAACP-backed lawsuit where a man was suing to try and integrate a brand new swimming pool. And the judge, admirably, ruled in his favor, at which point the citizens of Marshall voted 1,758 to 89 to have the city sell off the entirety of their recreational facilities rather than integrate them. Let's burn it to the ground. Well, they didn't burn it to the ground. It went into private hands. But they literally said, let's sell everything rather than integrate it. So the pool went to a local Lions Club, which subsequently and predictably opened it up as a whites-only private facility. This country is garbage. <laughs> so by the mid-50s, what you get is a lot of newly cash-flush and mobile, because cars, mobile white families fleeing from urban centers. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 low-cost mortgages to the GI Bill, and redlining, the racist practice of redlining, whereby you know certain areas were circled in red on uh, federally and, and internationally distributed um, maps that meant it was more desirable to loan to people here and, and basically ensured that black people couldn't get loans for homes. 
So that's how you get the suburbs. People are fleeing urban centers, terrified of segregation. They're spreading out. There's all this new housing being built up. And then we get the rise of the backyard pool culture. Think of their, your swinging cocktail parties, you know, your John Cheever, <laughs> ennui of the suburbs type. <laughs> mixing a pitcher of martinis and beating your kids with a belt and putting on some Bing Crosby. <laughs> and beating your kid with a, with a barbecue spatula, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you beat your kid with a sack of sweet Valencia oranges, it won't make a bruise. Uh, I think that's a Family Guy joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Don't know how much of a joke it actually was. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so this is all, you have to keep this in mind, is that there's the better technology, better construction, and cheaper materials. So from 1950 to 2000, the number of private pools in the U.S. goes from 2,500 to more than 4 million. Wow. This historian named Jeff Wiltsey wrote in a, a 2007 book called Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. All of this is to say that you no longer have to bare your body at a beach, lake, or pond. Now you can do it in your own backyard. And then the boob tube. And the boob screen, and the boob page, and the boob radio wave. <laughs> uh, the French continue their campaign of horniness on the big screen in the 1950s. Uh, one of the big ground zeros of the bikini on screen is in 1952 when a 17-year-old Brigitte Bardot stars in the French film Manina, the girl in the bikini. Little on the nose there, folks, but that's fine. And then there's famous pictures of her appearing at Cannes the following year in a floral bikini. And then in 1956, she appears in Bikini again in the film And God Created Women. Woman. Yeah, this really went a long way into giving the bikini sort of an air of sophistication and class and not something that, you know... Burlesque. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and then you, you start seeing the class of Hollywood pinups like Ava Gardner, Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner, Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, Betty Grable. You start seeing them in bikinis in promo shots. And in the early 60s, Emily Post, the matron of manners who, what, I mean, did she write books or have a, of a newspaper column? I can't remember which, but I mean, she was famously like, she was the person you looked to when you wanted to know, like, you know, how to set a table properly and how to, you know, all these really specific rules of social decorum. She was like the queen of that. I hate this era of American, oh my God. Well, really yeah, good thing. It's, it's awful. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's horrifying. It's, uh, she declared the bikini for perfect figures only, and only for the very young. <laughs> but the rise of the bikini was truly a full-court cross-medium press. By 1960, Brian Hyland hits the charts, hits number one with a bullet, with one of my least favorite songs of all time, a song I truly detest with every single vibrating atom of my being. The itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. Hits number one on Billboard, although not the first version. A Swedish artist named Lil Babs, <laughs> sure, cut the first version in 1956. <laughs> Jordan, what do you have to say about this song? I, I have nothing but terrible things to say about this song. I can't believe that hit number one. I mean, this isn't like the real novelty song era. Yeah, that, like, this like is like Monster this is like Mash. Hello, Mother, Hello, Father, Camp Granada came out around now, I feel like. Yeah, this is a low ebb. Uh before the Beatles came and rescued us all from novelty numbers. And... Oh, there it is. Um, 1962, big year for the bikini. Playboy first features a bikini on its cover in 1962. And also, to the big screen, Ursula Andress strolls out of the ocean and into immortality when she appears as the first Bond girl, Honey Rider, in 1962's 
Dr. No in that white bikini. It's a belted white bikini. She's got the skin diver's knife on it. Subsequently becomes known as the Dr. No bikini. And Andrus, she has better feelings about this than Raquel Welch, I'll say. Andrus said that she owed her career to that white bikini. And she remarked, this bikini has made me into a success. As a result of starring in Dr. No as the first Bond girl, I was given the freedom to take my pick of future roles and to become financially independent. Which, bravo. It sold for a ritzy $60,000 at a Christie's auction in 2001. Uh, also in 1962, we have Sue Lyons wearing a bikini in Lolita, but we are not going to go there. <laughs> the other thing that's important to keep in mind in this time in American culture is that the big development in mid-century American life is the rise of the teen. Mm. Um, before industrialization and sort of concentrated urban living and jobs and factories and all this, the concept of being a teenager was not... It, it did not really exist. As soon as you were old enough to help work on the farm or help work out the business, that's what you did. And then you got married, begat more laborers, and then you died from brucellosis at the age of 40, <laughs> as God intended. So there's no, there was no this notion of this transitory phase where you're not quite a kid, but you're not quite an adult. Not really as much of a thing. But changing societal mores, including you know, educational laws that keep kids in school longer, increased cash trickling down to them. You know, parents are cash flush, so kids get an allowance so they get spending power, which, of course, is political power in the country, so they're all of a sudden a market force. So not only teenagers are a sudden distinct demographic, but now there's money to be made in catering to them. And I know this is a bit more of a point of expertise for you than it is me, so... Jordan, take it away. There were artists that were traditionally seen as for young people dating back, I mean, I'm sure to, you know, the beginning of time. But I mean, you get your, your Frank Sinatra's and the Bobby Soxers in the True. 40s yeah, yeah, and yeah. big band artists like Tommy Dorsey and uh, Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman, all those kinds of people. But here, really, in the late 50s and early 60s, you have the rise of sort of the teen idols. You have shows like American Bandstand and this whole rush of teen movies uh, specifically, we mentioned this at the top of the episode, the sort of the whole beach party phenomenon starring specifically Frankie Avalon, who was a, a singer at the time. He had a big hit in, I think, 1960 or 61 with Venus. And Annette Funicello, and Annette Funicello is really interesting because she was, she was in Disney's Mickey Mouse Club. And so she was a kid that all the kids of the 50s grew up with. And so she was somebody who, I'm trying to think of who our equivalent would be now. I mean, somebody that like you knew as like a, a child star that then kind of grew up. So she had a real- Probably be like Hannah Montana, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good example. I mean, somebody that really like had a really special place in the heart of the, the baby boomer kids at this time because they all kind of grew up together. So Frankie Avalon and Net Funicello are kind of the king and queen of these beach party movies. They star in, in the vast majority of them. The studio that's mainly responsible for making the kind of the official canon one is called American International Pictures. And there's seven of them, but there's all sorts of like off market ones as well and they all have hilarious names like you know dr goldfoot and the bikini machine and how to stuff a wild bikini i think they almost all have bikini in the name and yeah and this is the part of the episode where i shoehorn in a whole bit about the southern california myth popularized in the early 60s by not only these beach party movies but then you get the songs of the beach boys and jan and dean where if you were a kid in the Midwest and you were existing on a diet of like, you know, whatever was being fed to you as sort of stuff for teens, movies and music, you would have this conception of California being a place where all the guys were basically walking surfboards and all the women were blondes and bikinis and everybody was eating burgers and cherry Cokes and drove around in convertibles and surfed all day. And 
essentially it's the popular face of teenage consumerism. To get it back to the, you know, the point of this episode of Bikinis, <laughs> there was a movie, um, it, it wasn't one of the sort of the main beach party movies, but there was one called For Those Who Think Young. And that's sort of the ethos of all these movies. I say that probably more than any singular pop cultural phenomenon, these beach party movies probably made the bikini more acceptable to the mainstream. If the Hollywood starlets took it out of the realm of the burlesque, these beach party movies made it something that acceptable for kids. And it wasn't yeah. something that felt very adult and very like inappropriate. Suddenly yeah. it was something that felt a lot more fun. Although Disney didn't think so. I guess Disney had very strict rules about what, because Annette Funicello, again, was signed to Disney for her time in the Mickey Mouse Club. So she had very specific rules about what kind of bikini she was allowed to wear because old Walt held her to her morals clause in her Disney contract. But <laughs> Yeah. And it's fine. I mean, you get the whole notion too, like the in this whole area era, you know, the Beatles are coming over and sort of pushing the envelope where they can with the hair. And, you know, it, it is the whole period that every hagiographic concept hmm. of this of the 60s will drill into your head which is that societal mores were changing um but you know they were (laughs) (laughs) um and that brings us to the most iconic bikini of the 1960s some people might argue with me those people are wrong (laughs) raquel (laughs) welch that deerskin bikini from one million years bc and the poster of her, it's one of the most defining images of the 1960s. No less an authority than the New York Times described Welch in the film as a marvelous breathing monument to womankind. I could not find out who wrote that. I don't think it was Pauline Kael. <laughs> <laughs> that costume was not so much sewn as it was sculpted. Welch said that the costumer for the film, Carl Toms, just draped her in deer skin and sort of cut around with scissors. Uh, I probably shouldn't be leering at this too, too much because she had she did say in 2012 that she never wanted to wear it. Uh, and so much to the point where she turned down half a mil to be in another one of these movies. Um, and <laughs> classic Hollywood, they didn't let her keep it. They just re-altered it, presumably again with scissors, to be reused in a movie two years later called Eve. That makes me really sad for a bunch of reasons. One, that she really hated doing it, and that makes me sad. And I'm also really sad that they tampered with this iconic bit of movie history. I feel like every episode we do the Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, (laughs) it belongs in a museum. But, I mean... For real, though. Yeah. Um, my favorite little tangent about One Million Years B.C. and the whole sort of press scrum around it was that one of the promo photos featured Raquel Welch in the fur outfit on a crucifix. <laughs> have you ever seen this picture? That is wild. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they should not have done that. <laughs> no, I mean, predictably, this photo was not released at the time. It was actually hidden for 30 years. Um, and it was taken by the legendary photographer Terry O'Neill, who explained this on orthodox tableau he said i wanted to symbolize the dilemma facing welsh as the female sex symbol of the decade crucified for her sexuality by the movie industry and the wider public who did not take her seriously as an actress and something i think also interesting the photo is apparently framed in a spot of honor at chloe kardashian's house and having said all that we'll be right back with more too much information right after this Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Other famous bikinis on screen. Gloria Hendry in Live and Let Die, 1973. She gets an honorable mention because even if the design of the bikini in the film wasn't especially notable, she was the first black Bond girl. Also from that same year, Pam Greer in Coffee. She's wearing a white bikini poolside. And that pretty much, she had been in a bunch of uh, lower tier exploitation films uh, prior to that. But um, Coffee is really what launches her into the zeitgeist along with Foxy Brown. Um, yeah, Pam Greer rules. I didn't know this. Jacqueline Smith caused some controversy because one of the 1976 promotional photos that went out for Charlie's Angels, uh, her other Farrah Fawcett and the other one. <laughs> uh, oh, what the hell's her name? Well, whatever. The other one, they were fully clothed and Jacqueline Smith is wearing a white bikini standing next to them. But that thunder got stolen right quick <laughs> because Farrah Fawcett jumps into her red one piece to promote the show and... Probably the second best-selling poster in the history of cheesecake posters is launched. We what what, what we got next? We got uh, oh Phoebe Cates coming out of the pool in 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, the Cars song "Moving in Stereo" obviously an all-time moment for the film. Um, Cates is this is kind of complicated. She has good memories of making this film, but she had done a film just before this called Paradise, which had also. Uh, nudity in it from her at just 17 and she did not feel very good about doing that film because I guess it was like a darker more drama thing so this one felt like more lighthearted in comparison but you know she did end up retiring in the 90s and so I, I feel feels gross is all I'll say full stop she comes from uh, a very um quite an interesting showbiz family I think her dad created the $64,000 question Hmm. Uh, <laughs> one year after Fast Times, we get Carrie Fisher in the um, what has passed into the lexicon as Slave Leia, which is a little unfortunate, in Return of the Jedi, the metal bikini and the maroon skirt situation, designed by Aggie Gerard Rogers, who has done a ton of stuff. American Graffiti, The Conversation, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Cocoon, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Color Purple, The Witches of Eastwick, Beetlejuice, The Fugitive, wow. Mr. Holland's Opus, The Rainmaker, The Holy Man. Why did you uh, end with The Holy Man? Is that, I, I is that the Eddie Murphy movie? It is, yeah. I think I put wow. that in as a, a punchline after all of this other iconic stuff that they've done. Um, so they were uh, working at ILM was where that, that got designed, which is, of course, Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's 
SFX company. Um, this was done from sketches by Nilo Rodis Jamero. Jamero. Mm. Uh, Fisher had to wear an actual bronze one of the thing for still shots, but there were other versions of it made in plastic and rubber for when she has to move. Um, with her characteristic rapier wit, she said of the bikini, if you stood behind me, you could see straight to Florida. <laughs> You'll have to ask Boba Fett about that. <laughs> and that she also called it what supermodels will eventually wear in the seventh level of hell. <laughs> I don't like this. I remember seeing that as a kid and thinking that it just felt wrong that she was forced. Just the her character was forced to wear that yeah. by this big creepy blob. And now, now as an older person, I mean, I don't know enough about Star Wars to speak to this with any level of expertise, but... I'd, it sounds like George Lucas was kind of a creep when it came to Carrie Fisher. I, yeah, I know when he she, sure was. She, she roasted him at the his AFI tribute, and she mentioned sort of stuff like you just said about this unpleasant experience wearing this thing. And it seemed like there was, like, you know, everyone laughed, but it seemed like there was genuine anger there. And she's often told the story about how she, when she showed up on the set for the first time in her Princess Leia outfit, like the white wrap thing, and he took one look at her and said, you're wearing underwear, you're going to have to take that off. And she said, well, why? And George said with utmost conviction that she said made her laugh, because there's no underwear in space. <laughs> Just an insane thing to say. Um, <sighs> and they also had that cameo in Hook together where they play that couple kissing on the bridge who get sprinkled with fairy yeah. dust and then float away. So I'm really confused about their relationship. If they, if it was like playful or if it was uh, there was a creepy edge to it, I don't I don't know. So I I you know I did looked at way too many listicles that were like the most iconic swimsuits in film and television. And I probably wrote like, some of those for VH1. Yeah. Oh, same. Um, I feel like. The rest of the 80s is kind of overlooked, but, you know, the big ones that always pop up again is the high-cut one piece that Pamela Anderson primarily, but also Carmen Electra on Baywatch. And then once we get into the 90s, I don't like getting into this whole, like, this actress past the age of 30 looks amazing in a bikini, but Angela Bassett's pink bikini in How Stella Got Her Groove Back in 1998 is one of the ones that's most frequently mentioned in that. Um, that movie, I guess, is something of a groundbreaking one for, it's like that and The Graduate for advancing the cougar narrative, <laughs> I guess. Um, I mean, I, I just, you're forgetting American Pie, but okay. Oh, yeah. Duh. Um, American Pie is what, two years later? 99. 99, okay. Um, and I just like the one that Tara Reid wears in Big Lebowski as Bunny <laughs> Lebowski, the, the green one. Um, Halle Berry deserves an honorable mention yeah. for wearing an updated version of the Ursula Andress bikini, this time in orange, which is probably the only thing anyone remembers from Die Another Day in 2002. Yes. I have stopped caring about this segment. Uh, the cast of Spring Breakers. I don't know. It's interesting because there's a longer conversation to be had for a different podcast, but I kind of assume like the notion of like an iconic piece of swimmer in media kind of starts to fall off with social media, you know? Or the That's internet. A, I don't know which. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's true. You stop having to like, people stop talking about like, oh, you got to see like Raquel Welch in this movie. Once it was just like, I can just open my phone and be flooded with every conceivable perversion that it could I could ever dream for. But <laughs> there's one last bit of swimwear ephemera in the monoculture. And now we're getting into a segment that I like to call what we talk about when we talk about thong song. You can't get to thong song without going through that f***ing itsy bitsy song which is the first big novelty hit 
with Bikini in the title. Probably the biggest. Beach Boys, California Girls. Might be a little uh, bigger, that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just want to bring up The Cramps, who have a song called Bikini Girls with Machine Guns, because Cramps rule. Bikini Kill is also coming up through the 90s. Um, their name was inspired by a 1967 B-movie called The Million Eyes of Sumuru, <laughs> starring Frankie Avalon. Baby, it all comes full circle. But I would argue that the high watermark, pun fully intended for the bikini's impact on music, is Cisco's Deathless Jam thong song. There is no definite article on there, despite what millions of people have mandala effect themselves into thinking. It is just thong song full stop. There's no the. Damn it. One of the all-time songs of the summer, despite the fact that it came out in February of 2000. Right in time for uh, spring break. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so, uh, little quick bits about that song. Songwriters Desmond Child and an ex-member of Menudo, Draco Rosa, they get a songwriting credit because of the interpolation of Living La Vida Loca. So just when Cisco says, she's living La Vida Loca, they get a cut of that of Thong Song now, which is, that's work smart, not hard, baby. So in the original beat that was sent to Cisco, the strings were sampled from Wes Montgomery's cover of Eleanor Rigby. Wes Montgomery, one of the greatest jazz guitarists of all time, famously super crossed over by doing a bunch of Beatles covers, um, which I think some of them are very good if they're not like truly straight ahead jazz. But yeah, the strings from his version of Eleanor Rigby were in the original beat of this song. And Cisco says that he knew that that would be a problem. So he tweaked the string arrangement and he, he claims in an oral history done for Def Jam that he pulled in some of the string musicians who were also currently playing on the soundtrack for Star Wars The Phantom Menace. It's a unified so, theory of 1999. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So at some point they went from like, that song slaps, the, the yeah. Duel of the Fates. Uh, and then they went and did the strings on Thong Song. Uh, I can't believe they used real strings for that. That's pretty incredible to hey, me. Good, I assumed it was sampled. Cisco. Yeah. Good for Cisco. Um, in that oral history, he gives one of my favorite quotes of all time about the first time that he saw a thong. <laughs> which is the incident that inspired the song Thong Song. He says, and I quote, You ever see that movie, The Ten Commandments? It's an old school movie, Charlton Heston. At first, when he was in Egypt, his hair was dark. Then he went up in the mountains and saw God. And when he came back down, his hair was silver. That's literally what happened to me. <laughs> He also claims that the reason that the video has so many women in it upside down was because the FCC was like, you can't show thongs in a music video. And Cisco says, quote, I was like, what if you shot the girls upside down? Then technically, it's not a thong, which I don't get, but sure. And then he says, that's why on the beach, we shoot at that angle and we got away with it. And once we got away with that, it's like we opened the floodgates for how much booty you could show in a video. I mean, this begs the question, is Cisco smart, actually? He's not wrong, but he's also not right, because there were, like, two live crew videos. Uh, and Baby Rex, Got Back. Baby Got Back. As we'll Rec, talk about um, soon on the show. Uh, Rex and Effects. Rump uh, Shaker yeah. is another big one from that sort of titillation early 90s era. But... Um, you know, I interviewed Uncle Luke from Two Live Crew at VH1. I want you to picture me really? and Uncle Luke. <laughs> oh, I love that. There's a, it's a, a video we'll, of that somewhere. It was on video. That's incredible. Um, lastly, my other favorite Cisco bit is that he contacted Victoria's Secret because he was like, hey, you know, I've got this number one song in the country about thongs. Let's take a meeting. 
And they did, but apparently they kind of nicely laughed him off because by the time he got in contact with them, thong sales had already gone up 80%. <laughs> Oh, hey. like, you've done our work for yeah, us. Thank exactly, you. Exactly. Well, uh, well, speaking. Yeah, we're winding down. We're winding down. I, I don't know. Are there? Did I miss bikinis in the monoculture? Tweet at us at bikinis <laughs> in the monoculture. <laughs> um, well, speaking of bikinis and money, before we wrap up, I'd like to discuss the most expensive bikini in the world. And it was created by jeweler Susan Rosen for a Sports Illustrated shoot with model Molly Sims. And the piece is made from over 150 carats of flawless diamonds set in platinum. Now, Heigl, price is right time. Would you care to guess, without going over, what is this bikini valued at? Uh, 150 carats of diamonds set in platinum, but it's not that big because it's a bikini. Yeah. It's actually very, very small. Yeah. $350,000. Oh, way, way more. Five. It's obscene. It, no, it's... 1.2 like, mil. Up, 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 up. You're f***ing kidding me. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> no, just go ahead then. 30 million. Holy Christ. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. Oh, this country is so. Then they bailed out the banks like the year after. <laughs> Jesus Christ! This country is diseased. Yes. Thirty fucking million dollars. Thirty million dollars. Yeah. For a, mag- I mean, I, a single magazine cover. I don't know if it was even a cover. I don't know. I don't understand what function it served. Um. But but Google it. It's it's. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. I don't. I don't really understand why it exists. Um, Holy sh! Well, but uh, what? But what, you know, how, how? Yeah, what? How else has the bikini evolved, Jordan? <laughs> yes, uh, this brings us to a segment I like to call the bikini in the 21st century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please read, read my take my NYU uh, class. <laughs> I'm an adjunct professor. The bikini in the 21st century. Um, now, this 30 million dollar bikini can do many things, but it cannot charge your phone. But thankfully, there's a Brooklyn-based designer named Andrew Schneider, and he took care of this problem. In 2011, he unveiled the Solar Bikini, which is a bikini made of solar panels with a (laughs) socket in the bottom to charge your devices while you tan, a USB socket. And it went into very limited production, but according to Schneider, each solar-paneled swimsuit took up to 80 hours to make. And as a result, it can be quite pricey, ranging in cost from $500 to $1,500 and up. Um, Insane, yes, but I personally feel good that fascinating new advances in bikini technology are being made well into the new millennium. And I think that brings us up to now. I mean, what else is there to say about the good old bikini? The world's first bikini museum is currently under construction in Bad Rappenau in Germany. Why there? The place that banned bikinis I know. in the 70s? Well, they're, wow. They're, they're, making a, they're making atonement. Um, <laughs> but by some figures cited last year in Women's Wear Daily, the global swimwear market was worth more than $16 billion in 2020. That's oil wow. industry numbers, baby. Yeah. And some estimates put its growth to anywhere from 21 to $29 billion by 2025, which makes sense because wow. we're all going to be cooked alive by then. Um, <laughs> less monetarily there's at least one historian her name is beth dincuff charleston who's worked at the costume institute at the metropolitan museum of art and parsons school of design found a quote from her from 2007 saying the bikini represents a social leap involving body consciousness moral concerns and sexual attitudes which all told 
Not a bad pull quote for something named after the atomic bomb test. Well, Jordan, it's time for me to take this itsy bitsy teeny weeny little episode <laughs> pilot, yeah, little little episode Kini, and uh, beach party blanket bingo my way out of here. <laughs> Jordan has this tradition of just letting me punch myself out of air, <laughs> trying to find a kicker for these episodes. Um, what we need to do is just fade in one of those like. Uh, shitty like beach blanket bingo style songs yeah what do you got weekend at party pier by captain geach and the shrimp shack shooters <laughs> what it's from that thing you do oh okay I okay know. okay no i want you to do your dj voice and introduce this well go ahead Yeah, now give us the Dick Duvet voice as a, as an All right, folks, for the ride out tonight, we're taking you to the weekend at Party Pier with Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Keep it cool, folks. Have a great weekend. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. That was DJ Dick Duvet, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.